copy of God's Word and turn them to the Gospel of John, uh, chapter number 12. Gospel of John, chapter 12. It always seems, seems like you make pretty good progress when you change the number, um, even more so when you change the book. But anyway, chapter 12, the Gospel of John. Um, we're going to look at this morning verses 1 through 11 of chapter 12 in this account uh, that's recorded for us. Uh, and um, as way of our normal way of doing things, let me just set the first eight verses for you by reading. You can follow along with me. Uh, this will be where most of our attention is this morning. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said... Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And he said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. It was a remarkable uh, narrative, a remarkable story in the life of Jesus. It really poses the question to us, what price is too much? When, when is our devotion to God or our worship to Jesus extravagant or out of balance, out of proportion? Uh, is there a reasonableness when it comes to serving God? A balance which we try to make out of moderation. That's the, the, the sort of common sense way of doing things. And another way, is it possible to go overboard when it comes to glorifying and honoring God? You know, kind of like you do, or maybe you have done with your grandkids or your children when they draw you a picture in Sunday school and you... You take it home and they say, this is you, grandma or grandpa, and this is me, and this is our dog, Tom, or whatever. And you look at that picture and you think, well, how marvelous this kid is gifted. I should sell this, but it's so sentimental to me, I'm going to post it on my fridge. And so everyone comes into your house and you say, I want you to just stop what you're doing. Don't look at the the house and, and all that. I want you to look at my most prized possession, this beautiful masterpiece that my grandchild gave to me and so you bring them to the refrigerator and you say see what little Johnny drew in some ways this sentimental because they drew it but let's be honest it's not going to sell on eBay you don't have to worry about getting insurance for that piece of artwork Uh, and sometimes I wonder if we think about glorifying God is like that we can make a big deal out of a small thing or Or is the problem the other way around? We make a small deal out of a big thing. Some of you recall and may have read the story biography of C.T. Studd. Only his highlights uh, stand in my mind. But uh, he lived in the late 1800s, early 1900s. He was 
uh, a rising star in England as a cricket player. And I guess that's not catching crickets like it would be in the South, um, but it's actually a sport. It was pretty popular in those days. Anyway, I was about to say like football, soccer, but uh, I should not do that. His father was an extremely wealthy man, which placed C.T. in a very uh, very plush position in life. He was uh, well off and he had a, a rising career, famous, and yet he quit all of that to join the mission field to the China Inland Mission. Uh, later, he served some years in India and then 18, 17, 18 years in Africa. He spent his life plagued with poor health, and he's often been quoted, and maybe you're familiar with the quote if you're not familiar with him, only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears, each with its days I must fulfill, living for self or in his will. Only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last." His story, like many others in the in Christian, in the history of the church, presses against the notion of wasted potential, at least from people looking in on everything that he had that he gave up just to go to the foreign mission field or just to serve God in some way. Our pragmatism says, well, maybe, maybe, maybe he could have done more retaining everything and having it all. And yet he himself said he obeyed the voice of the Lord to that rich young man to sell it all and come and follow him. In fact, I think his motivation could be seen in his statement, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. Well, our text this morning has two great extremes, and, and they are in contrast with each other. They remind me of, of the Old Testament understanding of honoring and worshiping God, which lies generations apart. Exodus 36, you recall the children of Israel come in um, into the wilderness, having been given by God a tremendous wealth as they spoiled Egypt for doing literally nothing and waiting on God to deliver them. So God blessed them with gold from Egypt and clothes and all that other sort of thing. And as they come out, Moses said, we're going to have a free will offering. And it's the last time any minister ever stood up and said, stop giving. But Moses did. Uh, that was somewhat of a joke. But nevertheless, you didn't get it. If you look at Exodus 36, uh, Moses said, you guys are giving way too much. We have plenty enough to take care of this. And, and what it was, it was an offering they gave from the heart. And, and you look at that kind of worship offered unto God. And the second is found in the book of Malachi, where they just simply offer to God roadkill. If you read Malachi chapter number one, they said, serving God, worshiping God, honoring God is a tiresome thing. Why should we give him the best that we have? Let's, somebody hit a deer on the way over here. Let's just go get it. It's something of what we see in our text of Mary and this extravagant gift that she has given and that of Judas, two people in close proximity to Jesus, familiar with his ministry, and yet two distinctly different, not because they're male and female necessarily, 
because one has embraced Jesus as Messiah and the other has embraced Jesus as a means to an end. One is seeking to honor him and the other one is plotting, trying to figure out how to make out in this exhibition of Jesus and the twelve. One is is really near Jesus both physically and spiritually, devotionally. The other is near Jesus physically and miles from him spiritually. One seeks to honor Christ and the other is filled with distractions. In fact, what we find between Mary and Judas, they could be no further apart. I want to give you a few observations about the text we read Uh, And it will hopefully help kind of unfold some of this for you before we look at uh, Mary's actions and then we'll look at Judas's actions. The observations is simply this. The Bible tells us, uh, verse number one of chapter number 12, it was six days before the Passover. Now this Passover is is a spectacular event for us in the Gospel of John because it is the Passover where Christ will be offered up as the Passover lamb. This is the last days of his life. Uh, This is leading up to Palm Sunday, which will be mentioned in the next few verses, next section, uh, and his Passion Week where he will be fully betrayed and, and then crucified and risen again. There's a parallel account of this in in Matthew and Mark, uh, you find it in Matthew 26 and Mark 14. Uh, and the timing is a little different in those Gospels between John's Gospels. And no surprise because they all have their own agenda that they're trying to convey to us. Uh, there's also a count in Luke uh, where a woman comes renowned as Jesus is there. And she washes Jesus' feet with her tears and dries his feet with the hair of her head. And most scholars believe, and I think rightly so, that that is a different account in the life of Jesus and not the same account that's given here. The location is different. uh, The response is different. And so we believe this happened before with a different Mary. Mary was a common name in those days. Actually, many Marys followed Jesus, kind of like Barbara in our church. There's quite a few of those. And so you just got to kind of figure out who's her husband. And and that kind of helps you. So if I, if I slow down when I say uh, the husband's name, it's just I'm trying to put, you know, never mind. You get it. Uh, the little variation in the gospel account in Matthew and Mark remind us that uh, the oil that Mary poured out was on his head. And, and here John uh, refers to it being pointed out, uh, poured out on his feet. It was a large amount of oil or perfume, and so the probability is she did both. Uh, Speaking of a lavish, kind of remind you the anointing of a king just being poured out. The anointing of Aaron where the oil was poured out over his head. It ran down his garments even to his feet. Uh, You you can kind of have that in your mind as, uh, as what's going on here. So that's not a very big problem for us. Uh, And and also we see here in chapter number 12, in the beginning of this, that they're in Bethany. Lazarus is with him, reclining with him. Both of them seems to be people of honor. Jesus being chiefly in Lazarus, I'm sure, was being peppered with questions. What did you see? You know, the questions we were asking and couldn't find an answer to. Well, they had a little bit uh, of inside uh, uh, connections with Lazarus. In fact, that he was alive and near them uh, than we do. 
Jesus was at this feast as a guest of honor. Uh, Mark and Matthew say it was at Simon the leopard's house. Some suggest maybe that's Lazarus' father and Mary and Martha's father. We don't know. We know that the family, probably many families, come together and put on a big meal uh, in honor of Jesus, his disciples, and all the people that were with him. And they were coming to celebrate. And what's the best way to celebrate, folks? Have a dinner and uh, just have a, have a whatever. So that's kind of setting up the context of what's going on. And in the middle of all of this, uh, Mary comes in, and the first thing I would note is, and points to us or reminds us that this Jesus of Nazareth, when he raised her brother from the dead, is worthy of all honor. He is worthy of all honor. If this tells us anything, as Jesus is sitting here and people are coming and believing in him and and focusing on him, is he is the center of attention. And and rightly so. It it should be that way. Even as we come together on Sunday mornings to worship, Christ ought to be the center of attention. If, If we could only see how worthy of attention and how glorious he he truly is, then, then we would spend our lives on our face before him. Uh, and this scene would continually unfold in front of us. I mean, think about the worship he received by his created beings since he created the heavens and the earth in the book of Genesis. Isaiah gives us an idea of him seated on a throne and angels continually ministering him, exalting him and reveling in his, his magnificence and his worthiness and in his holiness. So it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus is the center of attention. And we could call this a, a worship service. But I, I want to use the term honor. Mary seeking not just to worship him, it was an act of worship, but she's seeking to honor him. And there's a reason why. One, worship has a, a kind of general tone to it, doesn't it? Well, coming to worship, well, what does that mean? Worship who? Worship what? How are you going to worship? And in some sense, it speaks of general religious duties. And that is a good thing. But I think here, and I think sometimes in our own lives, we need to be more specific what we mean, and that is we come to honor Christ, which speaks of esteeming, giving glory to or or value to someone who already possesses it. Now, we esteem the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. They're the focus of all that we do, and and we come this morning, particularly this text, and this esteem which is given to Jesus. Now let's look at Mary's actions here. The first action is implied and the other two are found in our text. And by implication, what she did in honoring Jesus flows out of her gratitude. Now you uh, were with us, those of you who have been with us through John chapter number 11, you realize that the story begins with this great mourning, this, this kind of scene of death and despair and all the things that go along with it, hurt and pain. And you come to the end of this with a gift of gladness and a gift of joy. Her brother is alive again. Even chapter number uh, 12 begins with that, Lazarus sitting with them whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Could you imagine being Lazarus' sister? 
some of us would be kind of hard being a sister altogether, but you could imagine just sitting there and every time you look at your brother, you're reminded of the grace of God and the power of Christ. Uh, aren't you? You may not necessarily, maybe you do think of how much you love your brother, how much, how great of a guy he is, what kind of great personality he is. Some of you have brothers, you probably don't think about your brother that way, but maybe you do. But if Christ raised him from the dead, no doubt your thought will magnify that reality that as you see him, you see Christ's power at work. There's this 180 from this grief and heart filled with pain to a to really a, a joy unspeakable and amazement and and as she ministers to Jesus it 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 flows from her gratitude her thankfulness to God and what he's done. In fact, gratitude is fitting for any and all who've experienced the grace of God. Would you agree with that? Richard Baxter has rightly said a thankful obedience and an obedient thankfulness are a Christian life. That's the sum up of a Christian's life. Thankful obedience and obedient thankfulness. Now, we, we know there's even testimonies here, biographies from some of you that God has saved you out of such despair and darkness. You have first-hand account of the work of God and grace in your life, and it's evident as you praise Him, as you love Him, as you serve Him, and someone to ask you, why are you doing all this? Well, well, don't you see the difference that's been made in my life? Is that not an overflow, an outflow of thankfulness to God and His deliverance? His rescue from despair and destruction? Uh, there's a lot of other people in our church, some raised up in, in, in the church, some saved at an early age that, that don't have all the bumps and bruises and scars that other people have. But at the end of the day, isn't it still God's grace that you revel in? Because we are assured that nothing that we do of ourselves can keep us or make us bound to heaven, but it's all of what he's done. Uh, that is our our place to stand. That's where we, we live and serve from. And that is a heart of gratitude to our Savior. Uh, just the fact that we're saved and he knows us by name and all the promises that we have along with that should give us a place to rejoice and shout till Jesus comes and then for the rest of eternity. I know that makes some of us nervous, uh, shouting and rejoicing uh, audibly, but let's just be honest. If we could only grasp just a glimpse of his goodness, uh, the depth of his gospel and what it will produce as we are glorified when he comes back, then, then I think we'd have to tie you down. You see, she serves him out of a heart of gratitude. And I think of the, how you most honor and worship God. Let's say you even coming here this morning to church to worship him and, and to honor him. Is he honored most through our duty and the, in, in the attitude of drudging through it? Or is he honored most through a heart that is dutiful through the devotion because of thanksgiving, because of gratitude? Which is it? Drudgery or devotion? Well, thank you. That's true, isn't it? Hey, you know that. Some of you have children, and, and those of you who have been a child and maybe still act like a child when we act this way. 
trying to include all of us here, but we've seen it, right? You tell your child to do something. It's his chore. It's his duty. You, you tell him to do the, the task, and they comply with the task. They go do the task, but it is a, it, it's terrible. You know, they go with an the attitude. They're throwing things or doing things or talking to themselves. It's loud enough where you can hear it, and they're just kind of mumbling through this whole thing. They do it with a sour disposition. They have duty, but they also have drudgery. And there's no joy in that for them or you. Amen? Amen. Some of you have been there. Now, they obeyed their parents, but did they honor their parents? They did what their parents said. The grass is cut, or they did what their parents said. The dishes are done. They did what their parents said. But did they honor them in doing what their parents said? And the answer to that, of course, is no. Now, some of us may be so absent-minded at times, we don't care how they got it done, just as long as it's done. But let's just say for the sake of the fellowship of the family and the relationship, it does matter. It does matter. What difference is it when you ask a child to do things and out of care and respect and even thankfulness for the care that they have been given with privileges such as internet and cell phones and all that stuff like that, that they do the chore that they're asked with a cheerful spirit or at least without making everybody in the house miserable when they obey. And I say that of children, but don't we do the same thing? I did that yesterday. I did something, and I didn't want to do it, but I did it anyway, and it was not very fun for me and those around me as I was doing it. What's the difference? We cannot glorify and honor God if it is just drudgery of duty. We will not and uh, live this Christian life with the joy and the, uh, the vibrancy that Christ has intended for us without thanksgiving. In fact, if we live without thanksgiving, then we are modeling really our sinful lost condition that God has saved us out of. You remember God said of the lost, they're unthankful. If we are to honor God, then we must honor him through thanksgiving. And all of this makes sense as we come to understand what he's done for us and the daily grace which he communes and gives to us as, we, as he provides. And so Paul's word to the Thessalonians makes more sense, doesn't it? Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Well, that thanksgiving is implied in the text, but... The second thing I want to mention concerning Mary's action is the expression of value. The expression of value. And let's read verse number three. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with a hair, with her hair, not the hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. The expression of value. Now, the cost of the nard, nard was extracted from a, uh, a plant in India uh, from the root. It took a lot, of, a lot of plants, a lot of flowers come together to, to, to make any amount of this sort of an ointment or perfume. Because it was so far away, because it was such a, a painful task to get uh, the perfume, it was very expensive. And in fact, this was a rather large amount of uh, perfume. It was 12, consider a 12-ounce Coke can. That's a lot. And so that's about the size of it. 
Uh, and uh, Judah is very helpful for us at least once here in the scripture. And that is just trying to let us know how much it cost. So broken clock is right twice a day. And so Judas uh, highlights for us not only uh, the process of it, it was 300 denarii. Uh, that's basically uh, the equivalent of, of a day's wage, a year's salary. Now, I looked on, um, on a Social Security website for the United States, and, and I'll probably get all kinds of spam now after that. But nevertheless, I looked on the website and and just looked at the average salary in America for for this year, this past year, 2021. It was roughly around $60,500, average salary in America for a year, for the average worker. Now, I know you're thinking, I wish I was average. Um, so let's just say, for those of us who are not average, let's just say you make $15 an hour, the minimum wage in New York. And that's the minimum wage for New York. And you work 40 hours a week. And for a year, this is the equivalent of you taking $36,000 and buying a bottle of perfume. And some of you might want to do that for your wife. And she would very, uh, very much appreciate it. I'm sure you would flinch every time she applied some of this. Well, there goes five grand. You know, I love you. It was so expensive in these days, it was used as a dowry for a woman to get married. It was kind of uh, uh, to help persuade the man, I guess, that's what that was used for, to marry her because she had some substance. And uh, Carson suggests that this sacrifice was more than just giving this pricely possession. She's almost giving away her her future unto Jesus. Well, whether that is uh, true or not, not everyone agrees with that, but it was a very expensive uh, sacrifice is a very expensive oil that she gave. And of course, we see not only the cost of the oil itself, but the, the pouring out of it. The bottle would have been broken. The, the thin neck would have had to be broken. And uh, and the nard, as you call it, which is a funny word in and of itself, but the nard was poured out on Jesus' head, all over his head and his feet. Could you imagine being in the room and watching $36,000 being poured out in a moment. Now, surely they would have thought this irrational woman has just threw away her life savings. In fact, we know that they were thinking that because sometimes like men, we say things out loud that we're thinking, unfortunately. It was not just taking off the lid of the oil, kind of like essential oil. Some of you are into that sort of thing and they have those like little stoppers where you only get one drop. You know, just one drop will do you. It's magic potion, I think. But anyway, it was poured out lavishly. Not measured in drops, but it was poured out, and it was poured out to honor Jesus, the fragrance filling the room. In fact, she was somewhat like Caiaphas. As he spoke more than he knew, so her her actions and her intentions were more deeper and more profound than she had realized. Because it was to testify of his burial and this whole chapter leading us to that. You know, David comes to mind in the Old Testament. In 2 Samuel 24, David had sinned against God and a plague comes upon 
Israel and a great amount of death that comes through that. But, and so God says, go sacrifice. He tells him where to go sacrifice. And he comes there to the man who owned the land, which would later become the temple mount. And as he comes to that temple mount, he says, I need this. Sell it to me. And the man says, you can have it, king. It's yours. You can have the oxen and everything in it. And he says, shall I offer to God that costs me nothing? And you say, well, what's the big deal? He gave it to you. And David said, I will not offer to God that which costs me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 pieces of 50 shekels of seer. You see what's in the text going on is not the cost of the oil. That is put there for you and me who likes to, to put things in the weight, in the balance. By seeing the extravagant cost, the richness of the oil and it being poured out like that as if it was nothing is trying to reveal to us something of the enormous value that she held Jesus to be. A year's wages compared to the eternal king. A year's wages compared to eternal life. A year's wages compared to the creator of all things. A a year's wages. And, and, And basically she's reminding us who likes to think in checks and balances and moderation that there's nothing you can do. No, no extravagant act of worship you can do is as if it's that it's biblical. Let me just put that preface in there that will ever say, I've honored him to the degree that he should be honored. You know, we'll spend eternity reveling and attempting to honor him for who he is. He is more glorious than you and I can imagine, church. And she demonstrates by this costly sacrifice, he was more precious to her than, uh, than we might think. And he is still more precious, isn't he? He's more precious than house and cars and, and, and computers and phones. He's more precious than clothes. And he's more precious than, than all the other things that we've chased after in this life. There's no comparison. Well, let me just ask you as we think about this and, and her costly sacrifice. I want you to know she did not give the least of what she had. Kind of like leftovers. How many of you like leftovers? They just sit in the refrigerator. Some of you, you, you set them in there for purpose. The rest of us, we just feel too guilty about throwing them away. And so we can throw them away two days later because we're like, well, it's no good now, you know, so we're just going to get rid of it. Should have did that when you cooked it. I invited somebody over to help you get through it. But does your Christian life look like that? That the leftover of your life, there is a sense when uh, I would I would encourage some of you younger folks in here uh, that not to think about career and, and your path and your future and your plans and your goals as the chief aim of everything. If if that's the final destination, then you are going to miss everything. And what you have said is your your own wants. Your own image of who you want to be is more significant and of more value than God himself. It's a great retirement plan to say, I'm going to spend my retired days to serve God. I I think many of you do that here and and praise God for that and encouraging us. But you've also spent your working days glorifying and honoring God. 
See, the thing for us is that we're to spend both, all of our gifts and talents in a way to give to him all that we have. Not what's left over. I'm not just talking about money, and and you, you guys ought to know that. I'm talking about your gifts, your talents, your ambition, your devotion. Uh, To say it another way, do you value him? Do you see Christ as preeminent in your life? That's exactly what Mary is showing to us in this one moment, this act of honoring him and worshiping him. She is declaring for the disciples and the rest of us to see that he is of most value, preeminent. No one like him. And you and I are... We're called to live that way now. The leftover of our time, the leftover of our energies, the leftover of our, our days. Don't give him that. Give him your strength. Give him your passion. Give him your energy. Serve God in, in whatever way he leads you, in whatever place you find yourself in. Use your family and your vocation, your ambition, your dreams as a, as a tool, as a means to glorify God not as an end in themselves. It is not to reject the blessings of God. It is to keep them in its right proportion and its right place in our lives. And thirdly, I think we see of Mary, her act was an act of humility. Mary took, verse number three, the, uh, a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of perfume, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was about to betray him said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And we'll get to his response in a moment, but let me just say uh, that here against all protocol in, in one sense, cultural pressure, and she humbles herself. And she worships Christ. And she sets an example for every one of us. If we are to worship Christ, we must humble ourselves. And humbling ourselves is not hard for those who have a high esteem of Jesus. You believe that? Humbling yourselves is not hard for those who have a high esteem of Jesus. Well, look at Judas with me as we see a man who is distracted, you see him in verse number four. And the text in, in Matthew and Mark says he remind, he responds to this act of Mary's pouring out this year's whatever on Jesus. He responds with indignation. He was angry. And not only was he angry, but Matthew and Mark doesn't call him out by name, but John has no problems in naming him who he is. And get it, you get the whole parenthesis right here, don't you? Uh, this Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, in case you're confused which Judas this is, he was the one about to betray Jesus. His whole life was, will be remembered throughout eternity with that phrase. Now, in one way, we find a practicality in his statement. Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Wouldn't it have been better? Would it not have been better, more practical for this to be put to good use? How about the poor or or something else like that? It's almost like the discussion you have at every building meeting. Do we really need that impractical thing that looks kind of cool, but we're not sure what it does? And and wouldn't it be more practical to send out another missionary? 
well, <laughs> those are questions you've got to answer when you deal with building stuff. But nevertheless, we see his motivation wasn't just practicality. It was his, his self, his greedy appetite. He said this, verse number 6, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. Having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Tell us how you feel about him, John. <clears throat> How easy it is to use the poor in other uh, other potential or or even practical means to advance one's own agenda. That's what you see with Judas. Here in the presence of Jesus, just like Mary, here walking along with with Jesus, hearing his sermon, seeing Lazarus raised from the dead, and and in the closeness which he shared, unlike many of the multitude, continually day after day for three and a half years. And what a tragedy we read of this man. He could not be further from Jesus, physically present at the table, and yet so distracted and preoccupied with his own self and self-interest that he, as one man said, he got to the door of heaven and kissed it and fell headlong into hell. There is this idea of advancement which Judas is wrapped up in here, and that's the first distraction we see. That is the distraction of personal gain. And, and the tragedy is not only does he try to make out here, but he hits the bottom so hard that he will sell Jesus away for 30 pieces of silver. His motivation, his distraction was what can I get out of this? What's in this for me? What can God give me? What's in my best interest? Now, in some sense, we would answer all of those questions. Life, eternal life, forgiveness of sin, much more than you can comprehend. But that's not the answer that they're looking for. It's here and now. Feed my passions. Feed my lust and what I want. Another leg up or whatever it is. They are blind to the spiritual richness that's offered to us in Christ through the gospel. And maybe it isn't just in a religious affiliation like the prosperity gospel, which feeds on this sort of thing. This is what you get. God is for you and everything's for, for it to make you healthy and wealthy and all that other stuff like that, and which is godless. It's the very things that our flesh wants. But how many people out here are godless uh, with with no need to, to turn to Christ or contemplate who God is or the life and death and the consequences of sin, all because they're chasing some, some American dream. They spend their life after wealth and prosperity and getting so that they can be labeled as someone as having something, and at the end they have nothing. Jesus says, what, is it, what does it matter if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? And we might think we're, we're talking about those who are in Wall Street and those who are in businesses and, and those who are in careers where it's just all about money and progress and promotions. But even the have-nots fall prey to this distraction, don't they? They're so concerned with making sure they get out, even in the smallest trade or the smallest deal, they just want that satisfaction of knowing they won. And the truth is, this preoccupation, which leads oftentimes to manipulation, 
keeps you from seeing the glory and the honor and the value of Christ. You cannot see him clearly when you're standing in the way. The second thing I would notice, not only we see prevalent in Judas's life, he was concerned about the money and, and what he might get out of that. And, and because he was thinking that all along the way that he was dipping in, trying to get a little extra, maybe more so here seeing the whole thing coming to the end, and that is the distraction of popular opinion. We've read in the gospel so far that even chapter number 11, Thomas said, let us go die since we're going to Bethany and they're already looking to kill you. We'll just go die with you. Very optimistic individual. But don't you think these men didn't know the cost that it was going to cost them to follow Jesus? The heat was on, the plans had already been set, and this, this kind of pressure either to affiliate yourself with Jesus or take what you can get while the getting's good and get out is... Uh, look for the next exit off this thing. I think that's what we see in Judas's life. This kind of weight of what everyone is saying about him, this disappointment of your own expectations, all of this being led by the fear of other people and what they what they've been planning and do what they're doing. And while this may not be his main motivation, greed and self-interest was let me just say it is a it is a terrible weight and pressure in our day isn't it especially our young people that go off to school and you're surrounded in an environment that completely hates god not passive against him completely hates christianity it takes a, a a strong conviction a confidence in the bible and in christ to stand under that kind of pressure day in and day out some of you may even remember when you went to school, some of the feelings that you went through through that. And, and it takes a lot, doesn't it, not to get to the point when people start talking about Jesus and they start downing Christianity, not to say whether you're in your own heart and verbally, well, maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. You see, there is a distraction of personal gain that we find in the world that keeps us from seeing and and. and honoring Christ, but there's also the distractions of what other people are saying, what other people are doing, or what they'll say and do to me if I do follow him. That's why Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you have to hate your mother and father. Hate your own life as well because of that pull and that distraction that would pull us away from devotion to him. Their distraction, I would say in closing, is this, the distraction of performing above worship. Notice verse number four, the first part of that. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples. You know, it's remarkable. John is looking back and he's telling us after knowing what Judas did, that epithet, that that little phrase would be on the mouth of John, I think, the rest of his life, the rest of his ministry. When Judas Iscariot come to his mind, when it come out in a sentence, you know that Judas had betrayed him. But you know at this moment that this was going on, you know at the moment when they were in the upper room, no one thought that of Judas? Isn't that remarkable? The guy's got the money bag. You would trust him, wouldn't you? I mean, we don't necessarily go out in the congregation. Who is the most shady person in here that we can make treasurer? I mean, we don't do that, do we? That would be crazy to do that. I said shady. They're around. Anyway, you get it. He was trustworthy. 
But all of his character, all that he had been doing up to this point was nothing more than a performance. And he'd rather stick to his performance, to his false kind of piety, so that he can be loose, whether he would be committed or not, rather than truly seeing him and valuing him and following him. Never truly honored him, never truly worship him, always on the fringe, always pretending. There's another kind of performance that I think we find ourselves distracted by, and that's the performance of our own, our own works. We, we hear that in someone's statement when they say, well, I'm a pretty good person. I give to some charitable organization. I feed the, uh, I feed the orphanage. I send money to the orphanage every Christmas to get those little kids with no parents a, a, a blanket. And, and I feel, feel like that's my obligation as a human being to do that. Well, that's good. And I'm sure the orphanage appreciates your gift to them. And kids really like blankets. But that does not make you righteous. That does not give us a, an open door or pathway into the kingdom of God. I, I think we know that. We've heard it over and over here. And, and that's something we need to be corrected by in our culture because we think our charitable efforts are the same thing as repentance and faith. And it's not. We would much rather entrust our works much greater than we would trusting someone else's word of saying, if you repent and believe the gospel, you will be saved. It, it, it sort of feels more comfortable, if I could put it that way, to say, no, that's great. And look at all this stuff I'm doing. And yet we come back to the reality that we have to let go, let go of our performance. We have to let go of our, our trusting and our own merit and our own worth if we're ever to come to understand what the gospel tells us about Jesus Christ. It is his worth and his merit that gives us entrance into the kingdom of God. Oh, but knowing that, doesn't that bring you back down, back to Mary? And that offering, that sacrifice of thanksgiving? Why? Because of all that he's done for us. Now we know there are many more distractions that keep us from seeing and following Jesus, from valuing him above all else. And in this contrast, we have been looking at a woman of faith and a man of unbelief. But I want to say this to the church this morning. Every one of these distractions are still things that wage war in our hearts, isn't it? How easy it is to be distracted by the very things that, in, that entrapped us, that imprisoned us before we came Christ. We should war against those, repent of the self-centered living and the fear of others' opinions and performance without devotion. How do you correct that when you get there? When you see it in your own life? Well, I think you correct it by knowing who Jesus is and remembering what he's accomplished for you. By setting your mind and remembrance and knowledge of who he is and what he's done for you and seeking to honor him, not just with our lips, it, it helps us, enables us to honor him with our lives as well. So you remember the frame and the song, take my life and let it be consecrated Lord to thee take my moments and my days let them flow in endless praise well I pray that that's your prayer this morning your desire as we come and see this great reminder of those who honor our Lord thankfully sacrificially and humbly and he is worthy of all that Father, we thank you for this morning we gather together.
Lord, I pray that if anyone here this morning is trusting in their own work, trusting in their own ability, God, that you would even reveal that. And Father, let them lay down the, the burden of trying to make themselves something they can never do and make them what you sent your son to make out of them through his death and resurrection. And simply, you declare us righteous because Jesus was righteous. And you tell us and remind us in that great invitation that that if we come to him, confess him, call on you, uh, that you will forgive us. You will save us, deliver us. I pray that anyone here that's standing in need of that, that they would even turn to you right now, putting their faith in Jesus. I pray that you remind us all to be a... uh, to just meditate on this act of Mary, meditate on our own lives and how your spirits even spoke to us this morning, that we might live lives of praise and honor, glorifying Christ, our great Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.